Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your righteousness, like Josh said. Lord, we thank you that we have nothing to stand on, that we have no goodness of our own. Lord, we're thankful for your presence, Lord, and the riches that are there and the satisfaction and the joy that is at your right hand. Father, we just pray that you continue to melt our hearts when we see your Son. Lord, we pray that you continue to change our heart and our motivation. Lord, that you strengthen us to know how great your love is for us. Lord, we ask that you will open our our eyes and our mind, our hearts to you this morning. Lord, that we will hear your gospel anew, that it will refresh us and build us up. Lord, that it will melt and reform our heart and our values and what we love. Lord, be with us this morning. In your name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to take a couple of weeks here while George is in Mozambique. We've been, uh, out of the summer, we went through the gathering of the people of God, which was a great series as we've come together now as a church into one place. You know, what does it look like for the people of God to gather? What does it look like for us to be together? Why do we meet? What, where is this going? All of those really great, important questions. And that was a great series. And we're going to continue to push towards beauty and transcendence and this edifying when we gather together as one another. And then in October, George is going to preach through the book of Titus, which is our mission, which is our blueprint as a church. You know, what are we called to? What is this work that we are supposed to walk in as a church? We want to take these couple of weeks in between to remind ourselves, to recenter ourselves on the gospel itself, though. What is it that we really believe? What is it that informs us in everything that we do as a church and as we go forward into mission and as we live together as a people of God? What is it that does change us? And to do so, today I want to look at Luke 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, open it up to Luke 15. We're going to go through it on the screen as well. I think Tim Keller says this, that this is probably the best illustration of the gospel that there is in Scripture, and I would tend to agree with him. This is the parable of the prodigal son that we all know very well, right, of all the parables. And I think it is one of the most enlightening ones to really see the power and the truth of the gospel. So if you open up your Bibles to Luke 15, starting here in verse 1 through 3, and then we'll jump to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, if we just pause there, right so far in the story, we have a a father who has two sons, and the younger son comes to him and asks for his share of the estate. We miss it. Today, it's hard to understand just the audacity of this request of this younger son. What he is asking, right, what this would happen at the death of the father, that's when you would inherit. And if you have two sons, the property gets divided. Elder, the eldest son in a family always was to get a double portion. So that means if there's 
two of them, that elder son is going to get two-thirds of the estate, the younger son is going to get a third of the estate. So this younger son goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now, which is literally to say, I wish you were dead. Like, life would be better for me if you were just dead, right? I want your money now. It, the hearers of this, they hear this, would be shocked at this younger brother's request. But what is even more shocking is the elder, is the father's response to this request. What the father does, right? It says he divided his property between them. The Greek is literally this bios. He divided his life between them. He sold off his property. He did it. He took his property because that was life in the ancient world, your land. This is a rich man. He, had, he owned property. He took his property at the request of this selfish son who wished he was dead. So he sells his land. He loses his title. He loses his standing in the community. He loses everything. He divides his life between his two sons. And he gives the younger brother a third of his estate. He gives him the money as if he was dead. He would be expected to drive the younger son out with violent blows. That's what you would have expected of a Middle Eastern patriarch. That if a younger son, if your son comes to you with this kind of request, I wish you were dead, just give me your money. He should drive him away from the family, from the community, with violence. But instead, he divides his life between his two sons. Verse 13. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the younger son takes this money. He goes and travels, right? Every younger child's dream, just to take a gap year and travel. Goes to a faraway land and just wastes it all. Famine strikes, he finds himself in dire need. He goes and works in this field feeding the pigs. No one helps him. He hits just rock bottom. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my, fire, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So the son comes to his senses. Right? As a reader, you're like, oh, of course he comes to his senses. Many of you have been in this scenario. You've hit the bottom and you come to your senses. He recognizes his sin, right? I have sinned against heaven, right? I, what I have done has been terrible. I have sinned against God and my Father. I'm going to go back, and I'm repenting. And he makes this plan. He hatches a plan, right? 
He's going to say, right, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't expect the father to accept him back as a son. He recognizes what I have done is too great that I will never be considered your son again. But let me work. Let me be one, work with one of your hired men. Basically, let me apprentice under someone. Let me learn a job. I will live in town and I will work on your estate. I will pay you back everything that I owe you. That's his plan. That would have been the rabbinic tradition. If you owe someone this kind of a debt, you, should, you need to pay it off. So he makes a plan that I will go back, I will tell my father that I have sinned against him and against God, and I will offer to work to pay back this debt, right? this one-third of his estate. I will live my whole life and pay him back what I owe him. But continuing in verse 20. Oh, I'm one off, sorry. Continuing in verse 20 here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This Middle Eastern patriarch, right, is unlike any the world has ever known which is the point of the story in so many ways, right? He shocks the audience with his initial response to the son's request for a third of his estate. He actually divides up his land and gives it to him. And now, can you imagine this? You see this no good son of yours coming back, right? Most parents, fathers would be, right? Arms crossed, half in their foot. This better be good. Let's see what he has to say. This father runs to him in plain view of the town. He's not even close yet. He hears rumors that his son is returning and he runs to greet him. Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. That was a shameful thing to do. Women ran. Mothers ran. Fathers didn't run. In many ways, this father throughout the text acts much more like a mother than he does as a father. Complete emotional abandon weeping and crying, hugging his child and kissing him. And the son never gets to give his plan. <laughs> right? The son, all he says, right, I have sinned against you and against God. I, I, don't, I know I, I don't deserve to be your son again, but the father cuts him off before he can offer to work for him again. And instead, he gives him the best robe, his robe. The father clothes, clothes him in his own robe. He gives him his ring. He gives him his shoes. He clothes his child in himself, showing that he is back in this family, in front of everyone, the entire village, everyone in the countryside, everyone will see this. He's clothing him and saying, this son of mine, right? this is my son again. He's back in the family. And they kill the fattened calf, which again, for a modern reader, hearer of the story, like, All right, that sounds great. But to eat meat was a rare thing. 
This is a rare idea, would be to have meat. And the choicest of meat, the rarest meal you would ever have in your life would be the fattened calf. What the author is saying here, what Jesus is telling the crowd is this father throws the feast of the century. That They have never experienced a party like this. They have never had a festival, a feast at such great cost, such extravagance as this one. The father is throwing the greatest celebration, the greatest party that the town has ever seen for the return of this son. Now the story could end here. And for most kind of evangelical Christians, the story does end here. But this is just scene one. Scene two starts in 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So the older son, off working, hears the celebration, hears the rumors, gets close to home, hears the feasting, finds out what is going on, and he's furious and refuses to go in to the father's celebration, the greatest celebration and party this father has ever thrown, this town has ever seen, this older son refuses to set foot into. He's so angry. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Again, the father acting how he shouldn't. This older son has made, he just, this is an incredible embarrassment to him. This older son who should be, in so many ways, leading this family and an example to everyone, right, is publicly shaming his father by staying outside of the, of the feast. And the father, instead of disowning his older son, as he should now, with violence, just like he should have treated his younger son with violence, he should do the same thing with the older son. Call the servants, get rid of this no-good son who is shaming you like this. Instead, he leaves his party, he leaves his feast, he leaves the celebration and goes to this elder son. And the elder son, look, he won't call him father. It's really the equivalent in, kind of in modern English, like, look, you. Just the anger and bitterness in the son's voice. Look, you, this son of yours, he won't call him his brother, this no good son of yours who's gone off and squandered all of our property, you killed the fattened calf for him. Don't you see the cost? Why did you, I wasn't consulted about this. Why didn't you come and get me? Why didn't we make this decision together? You never threw a party like this for me. And you're going to do it for this no good son of yours. And the father, verse 31, said to him, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the father, son, this was fitting. I still want you to come into the party. I still want you into this feast. And we find here the real of the true reason the elder brother is so angry. Everything I have is yours, the father tells him, which is true, literally true. He divided his property between the two sons in the beginning of the story. This is the son's, the elder son's money. It's his calf. It's his property. Everything is his. So you can see the son's outrage. You are squandering my money. This is at my expense. This is my calf that you killed for this no good son of yours. It costs the elder brother greatly for this younger brother to be restored. And the story ends with this cliffhanger. What will happen? Will the elder son come into the party? Will he join into the father's joy? Or will he stay bitter and proud and outside of the feast? So what is Jesus doing here? Why give this illustration? What he's saying, and Tim Keller writes this in The Prodigal God. If you're looking for a book to read that really does explain the gospel, I can't recommend that book highly enough. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great book, The Prodigal God. You should look it up. There's so much in this, and it, we have to go through so little in a, in a brief sermon. But what, what Jesus is saying to the audience then and to now Right, is that everything that you thought about approaching God is wrong. Everything you thought is totally wrong. Everything you thought about how to live, how to approach God, is just wrong. And in fact, you see this in the early church, with the history of the early church. The early Romans called Christians atheists because everything they thought about God seemed so contrary to a religious perspective of God. Right, they, like, these people just don't, honor God. They don't worship gods or any god. So they were called atheists. And there's, there's a reason for this because what Jesus is presenting is unlike any religion that has ever existed. It's unlike any philosophy that's ever existed. It's a completely new way of thinking about God. And in, and in very significant ways, he redefines for us the whole ballgame. I want to look at just two of them. There's many things we could pull out, but I think in, in many ways we want to kind of focus ourselves. And the two things I think Jesus redefines for us through this story is he redefines sin and he redefines salvation. And if we look at sin, how does he redefine sin? Because when we hear the story, it's easy to see the sin of the first son, which is why the story for centuries has been called Right, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. But it's such a misnomer. It's so unfortunate that that's always been the title because it's a father with, with two sons. And that first son's sin is very blatant. It's very obvious. His selfishness. He goes and he does very blatantly bad things. He asks his father for all of this money. The father gives it to him. He goes and he wastes it on prostitutes and drinking, unholy living, Right, goes to the city, 
I don't know, for us, right, it'd be moving to uptown from the suburbs, wastes it all, loses everything, and comes groveling back and asks for forgiveness. We recognize that. That makes sense. But the father has those two sons in the story, and both sons turn out to be lost in the story. And in fact, right, both sons care about exactly the same thing. Both sons turn out to care more about the father's things than about the father himself. One son is lost by turning away from the father and doing bad things. Wanting, just he's honest. I want your money and I want to go live however I want to live. We get that lostness. That picture of lostness makes sense. But the other son is equally lost, but not by doing bad, not by forsaking his father, but by doing everything right, by never turning away from the father. I have done everything, is his response, right? Why is he so angry? I've done everything. I've done everything right. Now, no one is without sin, but Jesus wants us to see this elder brother has fulfilled every expectation of him. He's done everything he could do. He has no record of wrong to repent of, but he's lost. He's proud of his goodness, and that keeps him away from the Father. And the reason we included those first couple of verses of the narrative, right, was to show you there are two people listening to the story. You have the sinners and the Pharisees are both listening to the story. So Jesus gives them a story where those two people are represented in the story. And in really what he's doing is, is demonstrating to us how there's really two types of ways of living. There's two types of people in this world if we're really going to be stark. But there's these two kind of modes of trying to find happiness, true, two types of ways of living what we all think is a good life. The first way could be called a lot of things. Tim Keller calls it moral conformity, and I think that probably makes the most sense. Right? This way of conforming your life to goodness. You try to live a really good life. That's the first way we can go about our lives. We try to live a life that is very, very good. We conform quickly to the rules and the expectations. We follow, we recognize that, look, there will be blessing for following the law. So I will follow the law, and I will get the blessings. Right? You know these people, you're these people, I'm this person, right? Many of us re resonate with this. Show, what is the best philosophy to live by? What's the best religion to live by? What offers the best life? Well, I will do those things. I will live this life. I want to live a good life. I want my family to have a good life. I want my children to have a good life. I will do what is good. So I pursue goodness. Right? And that that is the most important thing. These people, this, the life of moral conformity, right? You look at the world, right? And the biggest problem in our society, the biggest problem in our world is people who don't do good. Like, why is there such violence in the world? Because people are doing violent things. That's why. We need people to make better decisions. We need people to live better lives. We need more people to go to church. We need more people to, right, whatever it is. Right, but you believe, right, that following the rules, doing good is the best thing that there is in this life. And you expect other people to do the same. The other path, so there's this path of moral conformity, but the other path is this path of self-discovery. 
You can call it irreligion, you can call it whatever you want, but right, it's this path of self-discovery, this path of individual freedom, right? where you say, no, no, I've tried this. this I get, stop telling me to conform to expectations of the law. No, the best life you can live is a life of freedom. It's for, it's for freedom. We've been set free. I can, I'm free to live how I want to live. I should pursue and do what makes me happy. And I want other people to do what makes them happy. Freedom is the ultimate good, is the most important thing in this world. If people were more free, this world would be a better place. Why is there such violence? Why are there so many protests? Why is there so many wars? Because people aren't free. Take off the oppression. Let people be who they want to be. Let people pursue what they want, and we will have a more peaceful, better world. Each side is saying, right, that their way will make the world better. Elder brothers divide the world into two people, good and bad, right? There's good people, there's bad people. Good people are in, bad people are out. That's what an elder brother does. But younger brothers do the same thing, right? This is the great irony of the younger brother, right? This is the great irony of our culture and society. The younger brother does the same thing. They say the same. They say it's the open-minded and the progressive that are in, and it's the bigoted it's the closed-minded that are out. What Jesus is saying to us, right, through the gospel, is that it's neither. It's not some combination. It's not some middle ground. It's not someone who's kind of perfectly for freedom and for the rules. No, no. He's saying neither. Neither get it. It's the humble that are in, and it's the proud that are out. It's those who have no confidence in being right that are in. And it's those who are overly confident that they're on the right sides of those two extremes that are out. It's those that know they're never going to get it. Those that know they aren't truly open-minded, that they aren't truly very good. It's those that are in and those that are overly confident in their standing that are out. It's the humble that are in. Because there are two ways what the text is showing us, and scripture is really, there's a lot of places we can go to for this, but this parable I think is, is the most clear picture of it. There's two ways of being your own Lord and Savior. There's two ways of being very, very proud and arrogant and not needing Jesus. You can reject God by living however you want. That makes sense. And that, it's an, that's an easy path. We can see that one. But you can also be your own Lord and Savior by being very, very, very good and pursuing goodness, where you're trying to get things from God, but you don't actually want God himself. Religious people obey God to get things. I follow God because God will bless me. I follow God because it will give me a good life. I pursue all of these good things. Right? I, I avoid sin, ultimately, because I, so I can avoid Jesus. Right? We don't even realize it. Religious people don't quite realize it, that you're avoiding the cross. You avoid Jesus by trying to avoid sin. Right? I'm trying to avoid my sin. I'm trying to live a very, very good life so that Jesus doesn't have to die for me. Right? I don't need him anymore because I'm living such a good life. I avoid sin 
so I can have the benefit of not being a sinner. I don't want to have to repent when I get to my small group again or when I get to house church. I don't want, the, I don't want all the consequences of my sin, so I try to avoid sinning. I want a good marriage, a good life, so I'm not going to sin. I want my kids to be good, so I'm going to parent the best that I can. I'm going to pursue all these things because I want this good life. I want to honor God. I want to have a good life. But you're avoiding Jesus on that path. You are becoming your own Lord and Savior. Religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God to get God. Not to get anything. The elder brother, elder brothers in life and in the church, right, are always looking for praise and recognition from people. They constantly need to be affirmed for their good choices. They need the reward. Why is nobody recognizing what I'm doing? When am I going to get, why, 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 don't, don't you see me? I've been so faithful. I've been coming to church. I've been doing all this for so long. Where's my, where's my recognition? And they're constantly looking down on others for making bad choices. Yeah, they better repent. That's a good thing. They came groveling back. I'll pray for them that they'll recognize their bad choices and accept Jesus. That's an elder brother. It's a life of underlying anger, bitterness, and resentment. Right? This older son, just so bitter and angry that he's missing out on love, on life, because he wants his recognition and can't handle seeing the sinner get theirs. According to Jesus, right, we look at this, and yes, religion is the cause of so much hatred and hurt in the world. Right, that, that narrative about organized religion being bad for the world, bad for culture, it's true. It is. Moral conformity doesn't work. It does cause all kinds of issues. But the quest for individual freedom and self-discovery hasn't been working either. That hasn't been, li- hasn't been leading us to peace either. Because both of the motivations, and that's what Jesus wants to show us, both of the motivations, the outward actions look drastically different of the younger son and the older son. But their hearts are exactly the same. They're motivated out of selfishness. Neither love the Father. They both use the Father. Neither truly can love other people. They have to use other people. And that's where Jesus then redefines what salvation looks like. It actually gives hope now for the first time. Because if this is true, if both of these things are lost, if you can't be saved by being good, (laughs) if your goodness can keep you from God, well then we can no longer divide the world into two people. We can no longer divide the world into good people and bad people. We just can't do it anymore. Even though that's what we want to do. We want to be able to divide it into the people who are right and the people who are wrong. Right? Everybody in this camp is right. Everybody in this camp is wrong. Everybody here is good. Everyone here is bad. If the people in the bad camp could just move to the good camp, oh, we can't do it if this picture of sin is true. Because neither, of these, neither camp goes deep enough right, to deal with our issues. 
You can switch camps all you want, and you can fix behavior. You could fix someone's actions, but it doesn't go deep enough. You can get someone to conform themselves to expectations, even to God's expectations, and do everything that is right, confess their sins, and start living a holy life. But that doesn't go deep enough. Because the problem, right, is that heart. Our hearts need to change. Our motivations need to change, not our behavior. What we need are three things that we see here in the story. We need the Father's initiating love. We need it. We will never seek Him until we recognize that He has sought us. That the Father has come to find us. That He left His home and He ran to us. You need to see that. This is not about you initiating something with God. We need to first see that God initiates with us. Jesus really redefines a picture of a father. Some of you have had terrible fathers. (laughs) Jesus is saying, that's not my father. Your expectation of a father is not what this father looks like. So a lot of people have problems with this God the Father image, very patriarchal and male-dominated. And Jesus is like, no, that's not my father. That's not the image of God. You have to see God's love for you. You have to see this father coming for you, initiating you. And you also have to notice that he goes out to both brothers. He goes to them both. He's not a Pharisee to Pharisees. Right? He reaches out to both equally. He doesn't just go for the lost. He goes for the religious as well. He seeks both of us. The second thing we need to do after we see that his love is the initiating movement, we have to learn to repent for things besides our sins. We have to learn to repent for things that are not just sin. We have to learn to repent of our sinful motivations for doing good. Because the difference between a Christian and a moralist, right, or a Christian and a religious person, right? Both of them repent when they've done wrong. Of course, both repent when they get caught doing something wrong. Of course you will. But a Christian repents of his reasons or her reasons for doing right. Because my goodness, my good life that I'm living is taking me away from God. My family that I love so much is replacing Jesus in my life. My career that's good is hurting me in my relationship with the Lord. A Christian recognizes the fundamental problem in me, that I have this desire to justify myself, that I have a desire to control God and to control other people, and I will constantly do those things. And I will look for any opportunity to control this world around me, to control people around me, to get things from people, to get things from God. So the Christian is constantly repenting, (laughs) not just when they do bad, but repenting of their good. And when this happens, right, when we do that, when that shoe drops, when that change happens, when you start to learn to repent of good Right? Everything starts to change. This is what Jesus talks about, about a new birth, a new life. 
this is so unlike any religion, right? No one, you don't repent of your good. But a Christian repents of their good behavior because that recognizes your heart. Your heart starts to change when you start to repent of your motivations, when you start to give to the Lord your good, when you start to say, right, I have nothing good of my own to hold. Nothing is good anymore because it was gotten by selfish means. Jesus is my only good. God is my only good. It changes things. You start holding things lighter. You stop trying to control people. You stop trying to control other things. You start to value different things. We start to reorder the ways that we think and we live and we start to reorder our life because this third thing, and we need to happen, right? So we got to see the Father's initiating love. We have to learn to repent of our good behavior for the wrong reasons, but we also need to be melted. I need my heart melted by the cost of bringing me home. Because again, this difference between a Christian and a moralist is motivation. I avoid sin, right? I fight sin in my life because I've been loved by God. That's my motivation. Not because I'm going to disappoint God, not because I need something from God, but because I've been so loved. Because of the cost to bring me home. Jesus shows this at the end of the story by showing this elder brother and the enormous cost to that elder brother and the elder brother's anger and resentment. (laughs) He gives us a bad elder brother in the story so that we would wish for a good elder brother in the story. What would a true elder brother have done in this story? Right? Father, I'm going to go and get that son. I'm going to get my brother at great expense. I'm going to bring him home. I'm going to bring the family back together again. I don't care what the cost is. Let's bring this, my brother, home. This, yes, the younger brother has a bad elder brother, but we don't. We have a true and good elder brother who came and who came and got us. There's only one time in Jesus' life that he doesn't call God his father. He's like the only person in the Bible who really calls God his father. It's a few times in the Old Testament, but Jesus exclusively calls God his father until he's on the cross. He calls him God, doesn't call him father. Because Jesus experiences the abandonment that was meant for us so that we would not be abandoned. Jesus no longer is treated as a son on the cross so that we will always be treated as sons and daughters. He was stripped naked so we could be clothed. He brings us home at his great expense. When you see this, right, when your heart is moved by the cost that God paid, that Christ paid on our behalf to bring us home, right, that a true elder brother would pay, I, I no longer, right, I, can, I can't be a moral conformist anymore. I can't go down that path of self-discovery anymore. I, my, it reorders my heart. It reorders my life. You're now, for the first time, a Christian when you're moved by the pain and the hurt and the cost of your salvation, when you recognize it was not you and there is nothing you can do or ever pay back, you're a Christian. It humbles you. So what does this mean for us? Some of us are younger brothers, right? You know who you are. The Twin Cities is full of younger brothers, 
Right? You, you have this heart. You've been pursuing freedom. You hate rules. You hate the law. You love Jesus. Or you like Jesus. But you don't like everything that seems to be coming along with Jesus. Because you think it's going to take away your freedom. You think it's going to take away the freedom of others. You don't like this patriarchal view of church, men in leadership, of the Father, God the Father, all these things. All right. Jesus affirms you. He says, you know, you're right. Religion has been the cause of a lot of hurt and pain in this world. But give this Father a chance. If you're on the fence about this, if you like Jesus but you don't love the church, give it a chance. See if you can experience the love of this Father. Be part of a family, of a community that pursues this kind of love, that recognizes this picture of sin. Honestly pursue God. You may be surprised with this Father. He may not be like your Father or what you've experienced. For others of us, and I think this is the majority of our church, there were elder brothers. This is your natural inclination in your heart. You like to please. You were eager to get good grades. You were eager to please your parents. You're eager to please God. You find out what God did for you, all right, I'm going to pay him back. I will live a very, very good life. But deep down, there's all this anxiety and fear and anger, constantly needing recognition to be built up. You're unhappy. Your cause of your anxiety, it's your goodness. Give up your goodness. Give up your good record. Give up your perfect family that you've been raising or trying to raise or the image of your perfect family. Give up this good record that you're clinging so tightly to. Lay it down. We will never not be elder brothers until our hearts are melted. If you're an elder brother, start repenting, genuinely repenting. Start to recognize your motivations. Give to the Lord your goodness. Stop trying to avoid Jesus, but rather see Jesus. As you recognize the sin in your life, as you're pursuing good, see Jesus. Put the cross before you. Look at the cost to bring you home and let that melt your heart and reform it so that it changes your motivations and the way that you approach the good that's in your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you came and you found us. Lord, we confess to you how lost we are how quickly and easily we think we have it all figured out. How quickly we think we're on the right side of history, of theology, of everything. And we look down upon others. Lord, we thank you for bringing us home. Lord, we thank you for clothing us Lord, we thank you for the cost that you paid for our salvation. 
Lord, we pray that you give us the strength to remember that cost, the strength to know what it means to be loved by you. Lord, give us strength to be able to see you for who you are and to be honest with ourselves, to see our sin, to see our efforts at control and self-righteousness that have been clothed in goodness, but really, Lord, has just been sin. Lord, we want to be humble people. We don't want to be proud and arrogant. We thank you, Lord, that you have come to us and you have reconciled us to yourself. Lord, we pray that you continue to teach us what it means to follow you. Lord, teach us what it means to love you and to live a life that's motivated out of love, that's not motivated out of fear. So Lord, for that, we know we need you to reorder our hearts, to reorder our mind, to reorder our life. So Lord, we invite you to do that. We lay down our bad, but we also lay down our good. Lord, we ask you to reorder our heart. Help us, Lord, to love you and to love each other. In your son's name we pray, amen.